0: Good morning, Taproot. I get the uh, pleasure of reading uh, the word today. Uh, My name is Spencer, and uh, as all of us are, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Um, When I finish reading these short two verses, I will say, This is the word of the Lord. And as a church, we will prayerfully respond with, Speak, Lord, your servants here. Today's text is Matthew 23, verses 23 through 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray. God, once again, we are just in this passage of woes, um, specifically just Jesus speaking to um, this ancient culture, but equally so us. Um, I just pray that our hearts are humble today. To not see ourselves as victims of this culture, but we in fact are just perpetrators of sin against you, um, sin against our neighbor. And God, just let us be humbled by these two verses and these woes. Let us feel the emotion behind your lament, Um, just the cry of your heart that we be a people that repent and just turn back to you. Um, May we not neglect, as you talk about just these weightier matters, the weightier matters of compassion for ourselves, for our neighbor, for those that are in positions of um, depravity and poverty. May May we see them as our equals. And may we just be committed to them as you are committed to us. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. All right. Well, good morning, family.
1: Uh, if you're a guest with us, welcome to Tappert Church. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here to work through our text here this morning. Uh, before we get started, just a couple of things. First, well, the main thing I wanted to uh, announce to you all is uh, we've started trying to build out a nursing mom's room. So we have. By God's grace, lots of babies and moms, and it's awesome. And so this room over here, you can't see it because it's behind those things over there, um, is being turned into a nursing mom's room. And so we just wanted to announce that to everyone so that everyone knows not to go into that room unless you're a mom with a baby who needs to nurse. Does that make sense? Um, Especially one of the things that we wanted to just ask is that for parents who have older kiddos who might have a tendency to run around the building a little bit, such as mine, to ask them not to go into that room in particular, because uh, we don't want to disturb the mamas and the potentially sleeping babies and whatnot. So that's, that's, that's that. Sound good? Yeah. All right, cool. And there's a, yeah, you know, by God's grace, this thing is going to get finished up with um, some, uh, the one-way glass, so moms can sit in there and uh, see and listen. They can listen right now because there's a speaker, but anyways, that's that. Uh, next Sunday, just so everyone is reminded, is Daylight Savings, so spring your clocks forward. Rumor has it, this is the last one. Is that true? Is anyone, has anyone, we were talking about this at dinner last night, and so it's up for debate as to whether or not this is it or not. I don't know. If I'm spreading false information, I'm sorry. You can cancel me. Whatever. (laughs) With that, let's get into uh, our time this morning. Um... Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to start off a little bit differently. I have a short video. It's a video that probably you all have seen, maybe, I don't know. Uh, we're going we're gonna to kick off with, with it this morning. How many of you have seen this? Yeah. It was, most of us, right, because it was on the Super Bowl. Right? There was this one. Uh, there was also another one. And I, as, I was, as I saw that, yeah, I don't know, I, it made me ask the question with this, I, the hope was to, to watch this and then uh, to just kind of ask yourselves, what, what sort of response does this provoke in you? Right. You don't have to answer, but just, I mean, just think to yourself, like, what kind of response does this provoke in you? Because it, it continues to stream through these images, right, of humanity kind of destroying each other, and then it ends with that phrase, he gets us, right? So it's this he gets us campaign. And it, it was an interesting, you know, that, that campaign uh, has, especially now, and is continuing to kind of stir up a lot in our culture. I don't know if any of you have followed some of the social media stuff or whatever, uh, the news. Um, it's stirring up a lot in people. And I can, I remember both commercials as they aired on the Super Bowl. The first one, I thought it was cute because it was the little kids that ran and, and hugged each other, It was a little little black boy and a little white boy. Uh, talking about how Jesus loves humanity and Jesus wants us to be childlike. And I was like, oh, that was, that was cute. The second one prompted more of a response in me. I felt uncomfortable, I felt convicted. And then at the same time, I was curious about the videos as well, because I wasn't quite sure what it is that they were doing. New campaign, He Gets Us, Jesus. There wasn't much of a... It didn't seem like there was much of a a message to it. It kind of felt like it was maybe a little open-ended for interpretation and whatnot. I listened that week after the Super Bowl. I listened to some podcasts, and uh, sure enough, after the commercials, there was a lot of evangelical target practice across the landscape. We're good at shooting each other. And, And it... So I did some more research. And here, here's, here's what's interesting. Here's the, what the He Gets Us campaign says about what they are doing. So what, what they say they're doing is they're addressing a problem. And so the problem that they have noticed and that they want to address is this. It's, it's a question. How did the world's greatest love story become known as a hate group? It's a question. Now, you, you might object to this, <laughs> right? And that in and of itself, that... that that stirs you a little bit. It's like, I'm, we're not a hate group. Well, I would, I would encourage us to listen a little bit to what they say. So I, was, I found an article, and I was reading what they had said about this. And here's, here's what they say. This isn't on the screen, but it says, quote, that's a very provocative question. When people who are spiritually open, which is a lot of humanity, really, when people are, who are spiritually open but not Christians look at Christians, Christianity, and the church, they tend to describe them as hypocritical, judgmental, divisive, and discriminatory. And so somehow, the value system of Jesus isn't coming through in the way that we model him to people who are outside the church. That's a really significant thing that led into the two goals that drive the campaign. The first one is increasing the respect and personal, personal relevancy of Jesus among people who are spiritually open, but not outward followers of him. And the second, just as importantly, is calling on Christians to reflect Jesus better in how they treat one another. Now, I personally find this to be very fascinating. I'm not offended by it in the least, I may not agree with every detail and nook and cranny of what they're trying to do, but it's interesting for sure. They are trying to capture the very things that Jesus did. See, if we were to and are to honestly look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, especially Matthew, because that's where we're at, what we will see over and over and over again is that Jesus was surrounded by the outcasts of society. Poor, marginalized, homeless, prostitutes, tax collectors, on and on and on you could go. Jesus was continually surrounded by them, not not just because he invited them into his presence, but because he was so compelling that they wanted to be in his presence. And so we have to wonder why, right? This should create some bit of curiosity in us. It should should create in us an assessment to to say, do, do these people feel safe? Do people who are unlike me feel like they can be safe in my presence as a disciple of Jesus? this is what Jesus did. Furthermore, Jesus repeatedly, as we see in our text, rebuked the hypocritical scribes and the Pharisees for not doing this, for continually pushing away the poor and the marginalized and the outcasts of his society. He was willing to call out his own. So we might try to justify all day long how we aren't hypocritical. I would invite each of us, if we're here this morning, trying to justify in our souls why we're not hypocritical, to rethink for a moment that reality. See, I think we need to embrace that we often are. I think we need to embrace that we love the benefits of salvation, but we are very uncomfortable and we struggle with the discomforts of neighbor love as Jesus teaches it and displays it. Another another way to say this is that we, the church, we struggle with the social implications of the gospel. And this is what Jesus is calling out in our text this morning. And so I just, from the outset, if you're feeling a little uncomfortable, I know, (laughs) I uh, anticipated that, believe it or not. <laughs> and, I think, and I think this text is going to make us really uncomfortable this morning. I, I, I just want to read it again and, and listen to these words. And remember, just as we have been doing the past several weeks, we need these to wash over ourselves first before we think, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this. These woes are to wash over us because Jesus' audience is, is disciples, us. And so verse 23, he says, woe to you. I'm reading from the CSB again this morning. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down Camel, and so the emphasis of our text this morning is is justice. It's it's social justice. It is the implications of the gospel to the human world around us. And here's here's the main idea that I think we're getting at here is that Jesus says that some things are more important than others, and the way that we love our fellow human is of highest importance in the kingdom of God. This is what I want you to walk away with. So I'm going to say it again. Jesus says that some things are more important than others, and the way we love our fellow human is of highest importance in the kingdom of God. So with that, we're going to work through the text. We're going to look, um, we're going to kind of jump around these two verses. Two verses, but we're going to jump around um, we're going to start with the end of the text, with so verse 24, and then we'll jump back up to the beginning, and then we'll kind of focus in on, on the middle. So we're going to start out with this weird statement at the end where Jesus says that you, uh, uh, you strain out a gnat, but you gulp down a camel. What in the world is Jesus talking about, right? Straining gnats, gulping camels. <laughs> that just sounds weird. Uh, and so this is obviously an odd image that Jesus gives us uh, here, it's a hyperbolic statement. I hope that we're aware of that. <laughs> Jesus does not believe that anyone has the ability to swallow a camel. Whole. I mean, Maybe you could piece that thing up and get it taken care of. But anyways, this is hyperbolic. And, and what I think the statement is, is trying to do is it's summarizing all that has come before it. So verse 24 is not only in reference to verse 23, it's actually in reference to everything that Jesus has been saying since verse 13. Really, what Jesus is getting at is he's telling us that this is, a, this is like a posture for the scribes and Pharisees. This is the way that they're living their lives. They make a practice of straining out gnats and gulping down camels. So what exactly does this mean then? <laughs> Well, Craig Keener, uh, scholar, and uh, he, uh, in his, the IVB uh, Bible background commentary, he says this. There's a lot of words on there. Sorry. He says, the, the hyperbole here is humorous and would certainly catch ancient hearers' attention. Wanting to avoid the impurity caused by a dead insect in their drink, which was a law, Pharisees would strain out an insect as small as a fly and anything larger than a lentil before it could die, in order to preserve the fluid, Leviticus eleven thirty-two and 34. Pharisees considered gnats, which were smaller than lentils, this is, this is the emphasis, exempt from this impurity. But the scrupulous Pharisee of Jesus' hyperbole would not have taken any chances. Yet Jesus charges hyperbolically that they would leave a camel, the largest land animal in Palestine and ritually unclean, In the cup and gulp it down. Their attention to the law's details was fine, but they had missed the main point. See, so what Jesus is saying is that they had they were emphasizing going the extra mile, so to speak, in these little things. They didn't have to strain out a gnat. They could have, they could have just just as easily drank the gnat and it would have been okay. They had considered it to be an okay thing. It wasn't going to be breaking the law because it was just so tiny, such a tiny little insect. But the Pharisees and scribes didn't want to take any chances. And so they were extra scrupulous, extra meticulous. And if there was a gnat in their drink, they would get it out. Right? I think most of us probably do the same thing, right? We're like <laughs> disturbed if we find a gnat in our drink. We don't necessarily want to drink that down. But we don't do so for religious reasons. We don't, we don't do so because we think straining out the gnat is what's going to ultimately be pleasing to God. And the Pharisees and the scribes did. It was kind of this, like, the, the big idea is look at us, God. We're taking your laws so seriously that, you know, sure, we can, we can strain out flies, but anyone's willing to strain out a fly. That's huge. We definitely don't want to swallow that. We're going to go the extra mile and get the gnat out. And Jesus says, well, that's fine that you do that, but at the end of the day, you're gulping down camels. Because you're neglecting the things of most importance. And so in the context of Matthew chapter 23, uh, what, what, what's happening, the way that this is working out is they're laboring for the convert, but blocking the kingdom. They're taking pride in their serious religion, but they're missing genuine truthfulness. It's what we talked about last week. And they're emphasizing generosity, but they're neglecting justice. And so in all of these, what's happening is heavy and burdensome emphasis was placed on the minutia, but the big picture is being missed. And what we've learned already is that the way of Jesus is an entirely different way. The way of Jesus is not concerned about this minutiae. The way of Jesus is not a way that is heavy and burdensome and overwhelming and overbearing. Jesus said this, remember, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light this is the grace of the gospel that we need to have washed over us this morning in the midst of our our hypocritical tendencies we're invited into the way of jesus those who are weary and burdened this might be some of you this morning weary and burdened by religion Weary and burdened by thinking that that you have to do more, better, and able to make God happy. Jesus says that's not the way. Jesus invites us into his his yoke, which is easy and and good for our souls. He invites us into rest. Now, moving on, though, overemphasizing less important matters. We'll move back up to the, the top of the text here. I'm not going to spend too much time on this point, but let's look at the. Uh, just look at it again. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Okay, so in, in short, uh, let's see, Fisher, you can go on to the next slide. In short, Leviticus 27 verse 30 okay, and Deuteronomy chapter 14 verses 22 and 23 commanded agricultural tithes. So so what they're doing is they're trying to be, again, they're trying to be biblical. They're trying to be obedient to to Yahweh. And so there was a command in the law to tithe, but the tithe was specified for only corn and wine and oil. So the scribes and Pharisees, the, the, the religious people of Israel, were supposed to be giving a tithe of those things. But the Pharisees, again, they went above and beyond, to show their seriousness, and they are tithing mint and dill and cumin. Now, the tension here is this, is that Jesus doesn't say to stop this. Did you notice that? Jesus says, you've neglected the more important things, you've neglected the weightier matters, you should have done those while also still doing these. So Jesus isn't saying, stop tithing. Right? He's saying that there needs to be a reorientation, though, around what is of utmost important. Okay? Now, just a, a quick little background on the tithe thing. Um, tithing, in the Old Testament way of doing it, went to support, primarily it went to support temple work, like temple upkeep, temple maintenance, those kinds of things, temple work, and the temple workers, that is the priests. So the collections were made of of finances and goods so that the priests could make their living doing the temple work and doing the priestly work for the people of God. And then also to maintain and upkeep the temple. Uh, This this principle, just so we know, this principle still carries over today. Uh, So I think uh, you see places like... um, 1 Timothy, it's 1 Timothy two, 5, I think. 1 Timothy 5 says that a, a laborer is worthy of his wages. Right? Paul, Paul is speaking there in reference to the, 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 the preachers, teachers, leaders in the church who labor in preaching and teaching, is what he says, are those who are worthy of their wages. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll read a, a brief section for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is, he's having to kind of argue with the Corinthians about his apostolic authority and that he has the ability to do what he's doing uh, and that he also has the ability to take a paycheck, so to speak, uh, from doing what he's doing. And he says this in verse, I'll just, I'll just start in verse 3. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this, don't we have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife like the other apostles, the Lord's brothers, and Cephas, that's Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I have no right to refrain from working? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain? Is God really concerned about oxen? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. He goes on and he says, isn't he really saying this for our sake? Yes, this is written for our sake because he who plows ought to plow in hope and he who threshes should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar in the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. It's the same, it's the same, it's the same principle that's essentially carrying over here. That's how Paul summarizes it. So what I, all I want us to understand in this is, is that in the church, that is for us as disciples of Jesus, we are to still prioritize being generous. We are, we are to still prioritize, I think, I think tithing. And, and a tithe, it just simply means a tenth, 10%, right? And so it's just this, this concept that we who have been given much, we who have been given everything by Jesus, Jesus gave everything, right? And so it's in response to this exorbitant generosity given to us by Jesus that we as his disciples respond in generosity. Jesus gave much, we give in response. And so tithing remains important on on a number of levels and for a number of reasons. We could very easily say that tithing is important for us in order to keep and maintain this building and also to pay our staff well. And that's, that's one thing that we're, you know, honestly, I just be, we're blessed by in, in Taproot Church. We have, we have desired and sought to pay those who are working here full-time well. Because the, no, the church is notoriously bad for not doing that. Right? It's kind of this weird, like, everyone else out there in the world gets to make money. Pastors, not so much. Right? And that's, that's just not what the Bible teaches, And so there is a a generosity in which we are to display as disciples of Jesus. Jesus tells us to continue being generous, right? To not neglect tithing. But care must be taken here. Tithing, as as Bruner says, easily leads to a spiritual one-upmanship. One-upmanship. He he says this, he says, quote, disciples do well to tithe, but disciples must be under no delusion that the tithe or any other minor topic in scripture is ever one of God's weightier concerns. So this is is where this gets a little bit interesting, like, and kind of filled with some tension, is that the tendency is to emphasize the tithe to emphasize the the giving of money. Give us more money. We need to give more money so that we can do all the things. And that's important, but it's not the most important. It's just, I don't know, that's just an interesting thing. Our tithe is important, but it's not the most important.
0: Right?
1: And so the encouragement, the admonition to us is is just, there's a, a guardedness in this. Asking, why are we giving? If we give, why are we giving? Is it to give as the Pharisees and scribes did? To kind of try to one-up people? I mean, for that, I don't know, you know, what that was like. I brought, like, five bundles of mint, and you only brought four. I don't know. <laughs> you, you know how that would work itself out here, right? Or do we do as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, and decide to give as it, as it has been decided between you and the Lord. That's how Paul puts that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And what Paul ultimately says is to give generously as God has determined as you want to give because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Right? And so there's, there's beauty in generosity. Being generous with our, our, our resources, it untangles our hearts <laughs> from the the idol that can be created so easily when it comes to to finances. At any rate, all that Jesus is getting at is is that the the scribes and Pharisees are overemphasizing the less important matters. They were overemphasizing the tithe to the neglect of the matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. So that's where we're gonna spend the rest of our time then is rejecting the more important matters or the most important matters, Amy Carmichael said this, she said, quote, one can give without loving, but one cannot love without giving. One can give without loving, but one cannot love without giving. And I think this really does get to the heart of what Jesus is rebuking here in the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, Jesus believes and teaches that some things in life, in the lives of disciples, are more important than others. What's interesting about this is this is what the scribes and the Pharisees have been arguing over. They've been trying to figure out what's most important, what should be prioritized. Jesus now confirms it to be true. There are indeed things that are more important than others. The difference is that Jesus sees with clarity while the scribes and Pharisees are blind. So we're to receive our teaching from Jesus. And so I think the question that we need to ask then is why might we... If we're, to, if we're to let these words wash over us, why might we, like the scribes and Pharisees, place a heavier emphasis on tithing than on justice, mercy, and faithfulness, when Jesus says that the latter three are more important? I think, and this is, and this is where this gets a little bit unsettling, right? I think our culture has, and our church culture in particular, has a very interesting relationship with justice. the point that we tend to neglect it. But before we get to that, we have to give some definitions, right? I think first we need to know what justice and mercy and faithfulness are. So just a, a brief snap of, of what these are. Justice, in the Greek here, is the word krisis, uh, kind of like crisis, right? and it can mean judgment or justice. You know, this is, this is pretty typical with, with Greek language, the Greek words have a, a, a range of meaning. What's important is understanding them in their context, right? That's what determines the meaning. And so when the context means justice, like it does here, it means to be concerned about the rights of the oppressed. To be concerned about the rights of the oppressed. So in our text, the sin of the Pharisees is not a neglect of judgment, but an indifference to the right of the poor. So that's justice. Mercy, mercy is the word eleos. And mercy is the emotion roused by contact with an affliction which comes undeservedly on someone else. So mercy is, it's seeing someone else going through some sort of affliction. It could be injustice, it could be physical afflictions of some type, Mercy is that emotional response that we have to that reality. And, it, and then mercy then prompts us to do something. Okay. So in, in this sense, what we need to understand with justice and mercy is that they, in, in, in the New Testament in particular, they often go hand in hand. Okay. So that's justice, mercy. Faithfulness is the word pistis. And this is an interesting word, it's very complex, it has a very wide range of meaning. It means, primarily it means faith in someone who is faithful. It's like we can plug that in, right? It's, for, for the disciple, it's faith in Jesus. Why would we have faith in Jesus? Because of the faithfulness of Jesus. Right? But it also means loyalty. And this is is part of of the word faith that we've lost a lot of, is is its emphasis on loyalty, giving loyalty to King Jesus. This is especially true in light of what the gospel is and in light of what the kingdom is. In in many ways, it's, it's, it's understood to be giving loyalty to, allegiance to Jesus, not some other king. And so it's, it's, it's loyalty as in loyalty to Jesus or Yahweh because of their faithfulness. And these concepts are found all throughout Scripture. Scripture is saturated in the language of faithfulness, justice, righteousness, and mercy. We, we, we absolutely cannot escape it. They are frequently held together, and they are often highlighted, hear this, they are often highlighted as the primary transgressions of Israel. So we'll do this here in just a sec. If you read through the prophetic books, um, the latter prophets in particular, or the major prophets as we know them, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, so on and so forth, over and over and over again the primary rebuke against the people is because of their injustice. Because of their oppression on their own and on their neighbor. So listen to what Isaiah says, Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1 sets out, you know, Isaiah is huge, 66 chapters, very large prophetic book. But it tells us from the get-go what the problem is. Right? And, and listen to what it says, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. I'll read from 10 through 20. It says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Just so we know, that is not a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. That is referencing the people of Israel. It was God's way of saying, here's how you're living. He's saying, you're my people, but here's how you're living, here's how you're being. You're being like Sodom, you're being like Gomorrah. It would have brought shock and awe to the people of Israel. So he goes on, verse 11, "'What are all of your sacrifices to me?' asks the Lord. "'I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. "'I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats.'" When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my court's? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and calling of solemn assemblies, I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Whoa deep breath. (laughs) Yahweh is saying, I understand the law. I understand the sacrificial system, but I'm sick of it because you're abusing it. To the neglect of what? Here's what he says in verse 16. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. That is the one who's doing injustice. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come, let's settle this, says the Lord Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I'd be willing to bet if any of us have anything underlined in Isaiah 1, it's probably verses 18 and 19 and not verses 16 and 17. But what Yahweh is correcting, what Yahweh is rebuking in his people is a lack of justice and a lack of righteousness in regards to social human interactions. Okay? So this is, this is not a new problem. This has been the problem of God's people all throughout the story. And it's come to this point. So why then? Why do we reject justice, mercy, and faithfulness? And I'm, going to go out on a limb here, and I'll just assume that you neglect it just as I do. This is super uncomfortable for me. I'd much rather write a check than get my hands dirty easier it keeps it keeps me at a, a, a safe distance it prevents me from having to get involved in the mess and the unknowns and the unexpecteds, and the criticism from the people on the outside I am not good at justice I often cower when opportunity for justice comes And so Jesus' words are a challenge to us. So why is the question we're asking? I think what we see from the text is this. We see matters of intentionality, misguided judgment, and a distorted gospel. Let's unpack these here. First, matters of intentionality. The first thing that Jesus really gets at here is that the scribes and Pharisees have not simply forgotten about justice. They have intentionally neglected it. So when, when Jesus says that you have neglected the more important or the weightier matters of the law, there's, there's not a, oops, I forgot. Spaced it, sorry, Lord. There's an intentionality in what they're doing. And, and, and it could be an intentional forgetfulness or just an intentional Refusal. But the idea is just this intentional dropping or letting go of, is what the the, the phrase neglect means. And see, here's the reality, is that we will do that which we find to be most important, and we will give intention to that which we find to be most important. When it comes to justice, we just tend to lack intentionality. Or rather, we're simply more intentional to do other things. Here's, here's a quote from Bruner. I'll just say, I don't like this quote. Uh, it just made me go, ooh, that's true. Thanks, Fred. His name's Frederick. <laughs> um, the abrupt past tense suggests a decision to let go of or to discontinue as if social justice concerns and ministries of mercy and faith are so definitely secondary to spiritual responsibilities that they may with good conscience be dropped, the problem with us who are serious, that is like the Pharisees, is not only that we do too much, as the case often seems to be, it is that in the few really important matters we do too little. In essence, what Bruner is saying, for how many of us is the excuse of not being able to do matters of justice is, well, I'm busy. My, my schedule's full. I don't have time. I'm doing a lot. And all of that may be well and good. All of that may be true. But here's, here's where the challenge is in this. It's what in our lives needs to give like to give way? Or where in our lives do we need to slow down? What in our lives do we maybe need to drop or, or reorder so as to intentionally create more margin to, to do what Jesus says is more important? Again, Jesus says this. And as disciples, what's our claim? Our, our claim is that He's our King. If our King says something's important, what should we, what should we listen to? Our King. And so it might just be that we need to make an assessment and ask what needs to give so that I can be more human myself. Most of us don't live very human lives. We fill up every minute with stuff, and we're crazy. Right? And so, just like for the sake of our own humanity, and then also to love other humans. There is intentionality that perhaps needs to go into thinking about this. So, matters of intentionality. How will we we be intentional? The The second point I want to make here is that of misguided judgment. Misguided judgment. So this... This isn't in this text explicitly. It's more or less just scattered all throughout. All throughout the Gospels. Over and over and over again, in the the overall framework of Matthew's Gospel, the scribes and Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious leaders, were misguided in judging what was and is of primary importance. Again, this is what Jesus is rebuking. This is what he's calling out. But... This goes beyond trying to determine if we should worship or give money rather than to do justice. I think the way that this works itself out today is is our misguided judgment is that we think that we get to determine who we enact justice upon. In in other words, we, we think that we have the ability to play God. We get to say, well, you don't deserve because, fill in the blank. Or, or I'll, sure, I'll give this to you because, whatever it may be. Often, because it, it comes easier, <laughs> makes us feel better, makes us look good. This is the posture of the scribe and the Pharisee. Right? Like, it's easy to do something if I know that I'm going to get some benefit from it. Or if I'm going to get some applause from it, or some positive feedback from it, this is a funny side note. We had tried to kick up the, the warming center here, right, earlier, and the news came, and the news wanted to interview us, and they wanted to interview the Valley House, and it was just, it was comical. They came, and they asked, they're asking me about this, and I kept saying, I, I we just, I'm just the, one of the pastors, and we just want to offer our building. Like, we just want to offer our space for people to come and be able to get warm. And then the little news clip man, I was the hero. It was insane. It's like, this was my brainchild and my idea, and I just want this place to be better. And I was like, this, that's wacky, people. Come on. And they did that with several other people. That's easy. I mean there's there's a part of there's a part in there like pride like, yeah, I do want this place to be better. Yeah. <laughs> Subtle hypocrisies. And so what we need to understand then is that we, we don't get to make that determination. So here, here's, here's where this just really like, rubber meets the road for us, our culture, our, our moment, time in history, right? How do we feel about the refugee fleeing the Middle East or Central America, coming into our country? How do we feel about the colored person, be it black or brown or otherwise? That's in the news an awful lot. How about the police officer? How about the person struggling with their sexuality? How about the homeless? Right. See, what, what Jesus is, is rebuking is so often we, we put ourselves in this place of saying, well, the refugee, they don't, they don't deserve this justice because whatever. The black person will look at what they did. so on and so forth. We make judgments on who's deserving of justice and mercy and we simply shouldn't be. I just just can't find a verse to tell me otherwise. (laughs) Actually, not only can I not find one to tell me otherwise, there's many that that tell me what mercy should look like. Maybe we'll get to that in a moment, but how does this happen? How do, we, how do we get to a place of this misguided judgment where we think that we have the right or the ability to say who is determined or who is deserving of what and what not? Well, it happens because we misunderstand our own poor state. Here's what I found. Oh my gosh. <laughs> look, at, look with me in the Gospel of Luke. We had referenced this a couple of weeks ago. In, in, in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, Jesus, Jesus illustrates this reality for us. He says that one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house, reclined at the table, and a woman in the town who was a sinner, remember most likely a prostitute, found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears she wiped his feet with her hair kissing them and anointing them with the perfume when the Pharisee saw who had invited him or when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this he said to himself this man if he were a prophet would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him she is a sinner Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, "Say it, teacher." A creditor has two debtors; one owed five hundred denarii, and the other fifty. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, "I suppose the one he forgave more." You have answered, judged correctly. He told him, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, "Do you see this woman? I entered your house." You gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven." those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All of which is is this story which illustrates this reality of of mercy. And so the question for us to ask as disciples is will we take the time to meditate on this? See, our judgment is, on who deserves mercy and doesn't is misguided when we don't realize how much mercy has been poured out upon us. And it's a lot. Like, I know a lot of us, I, I know most of us, we're good. Like, we're good. I mean, we do good for the most part. But man, we're still desperately in need of the grace of Jesus. And we don't get there without intentionality. Like, we don't come to that conclusion without a work of the Spirit and intentionality to think and meditate deeply on this reality. Which, by the way, just so we know, this is what the season of Lent is for. This season for us, leading to the cross and resurrection of Jesus, is a season in which we are intended to meditate deeply on areas of sin in our own lives that need to be repented of and and, and be washed new and fresh in the mercy of God. And when we experience the mercy of God, it changes the way in which we do mercy. It just completely reorients it. So misguided judgment. The third is distorted gospel. Distorted gospel. Now this... This is challenging. Okay. I think one of the main reasons that justice and mercy and faithfulness is neglected is because of a distorted or a truncated gospel. And this plays itself out on a number of levels. It's very complex. I'm going to highlight two for us. Right, two for us. The first is just simply the American evangelical gospel. And this is, this is the gospel that most of us are familiar with. It's the gospel that brought most of us to, to be a Christian. It's probably the one that most of us are, are continuing to be most familiar with. Uh, it is what one scholar called the John 3:16 Gospel. It's that you're a sinner going to hell, but Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. That's fine, but that's not full. That's not complete. As a matter of fact, if we were to read through the Gospels and, and look at what Jesus says about what the Gospel is, you would be hard-pressed to find that message. And when I say hard-pressed, I mean, not there. <laughs> right? What this is, is in the words of John Mark Comer, is it's a Gospel that made it possible to become a Christian but not become a disciple of Jesus. And so again, we have to ask, what are matters of most importance? And Jesus would emphasize discipleship to him. That is, knowing who he is, becoming like him, and doing what he did.
0: We'll
1: right? see a bit more on this in a minute. These, we have to, I want to understand first though that these things aren't wrong or heretical in and of themselves. Right? But they're just, they're just not complete. It's not the full Gospel, it's it's distorted. The second distortion is what we would just, what we would probably call the social gospel. Now, I did I did some research on this. I've done a little bit in the past. I did a little bit more this last week, and this is a this is a real challenge that we face. And, and, and the social gospel, how many of you are familiar with that, that phrase, that language? A little bit? Okay. Uh, this concept, this idea, it came out of the early 1900s when the social gospel, so-called, captured the attention of, of many Christians. And, and what it did is it essentially it, it supposedly placed too much of an emphasis on justice, that is, doing good, <laughs> and wanting to see society reordered through doing good to the neglect of the preaching of the gospel, right? And so what happens, what we see, the way this plays itself out now, the, the kind of the pushback when we, the church, want to emphasize the doing of justice. Here's what I've heard. The, the pushback is, no, we, de- we need to just preach the gospel. Anyone? No, just preach the gospel. The past couple of years, just so, just so we know, when we've seen issues of, of uh George Floyd, police, violence, uh, Black Lives Matter. I'm not overly concerned with how you feel about that. Just so you know. I know there's a lot of different opinions. But in the midst of all of that, anytime Christians have tried to step in a little bit and push in a little bit, the most common evangelical pushback is stop doing that, just preach the gospel. As if it's some kind of magic potion or magic wand that we get to wave that will fix everything. How are we doing? The other way that this works itself out is, is, is we will say things like, well, justice is for God. God will do justice. I don't, I don't need to worry about it. God will take care of it. It's absolutely true. But also neglecting what Jesus says. You see, if, if, our, if our push against justice and mercy and faithfulness is to just preach the gospel, we're just avoiding what Jesus is saying is of utmost importance. And some would say, well, what about, what about 1 Corinthians? Paul, Paul went to the church in Corinth, right? And he said, we decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like, that's the verse, All right? We have a verse to just preach the gospel. Paul did it. What's misunderstood is the context of Corinth, because what Paul is doing is he's preaching it into a context in Corinth that loves this idea of wisdom. And what Paul is saying is that the gospel is this foolish message that subverts the way of the Corinthian world. It makes no sense. And so Paul is saying, here's, here's real wisdom. It's the wisdom of God. Paul's not saying we're going to neglect doing good. We're not gonna neglect justice and mercy. Right? It's very intentional in what he said. So, with that, where we need to go is we we must recover the King Jesus gospel. Right? See, the gospel as it is presented to us in the Gospels is, is just that. It, it's it's very multifaceted. Here, here, here's, here's what I want to say. We get the word from the word evangelize, right? And in, in, in evangelize, it's to evangelize or preach the gospel in Jesus' context, so what we have to understand, it was the idea of bringing the good news of a momentous event. And we've done this numerous times. What kind of event is it announcing? It's a royal proclamation It's the announcing of a new king and a new kingdom of which Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. The gospel is a royal announcement about a king and a kingdom. The gospel, as told in the gospels, has found its culmination in the person and work, the rule and reign of Jesus. And yes, it absolutely came through his Sacrifice. The scandal of that, though, is that the ultimate injustice was done on the one who didn't deserve it so that true justice would go out into the world. And so what we learn from the Gospels is that the Gospel is much bigger, deeper, longer than many of us were led to believe. It is complex, it is simple, but it is beautiful. And it takes time to unpack. Have any of you ever tried to communicate the gospel in three minutes? It's, it's really not possible. Like, if we're really going to get to, like, the core of what the gospel is. You see this in the, you see this in the story of Acts. Right? As, as Paul is, Paul is in, in Jerusalem, the center of the, 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 the world of the Torah and the teachings of Scripture, There's less explanation that's needed, but the farther and farther that Paul and his missionary bands get away from Jerusalem, notice he spends a long time in those places to explain to them the gospel, right? I think in Corinth, he was there for 18 months. I think in Ephesus, he was there for three years teaching them the gospel, right? And and what we learn is that it's unlike what was expected. What the gospel is, in the gospels, is not what was expected. And yet it's better. And here's what we need to understand about the true gospel, the King Jesus gospel, is that it has social implications. And if the gospel we preach and believe does not have social implications, then it is no gospel because it is a proclamation of a new order coming into existence under a new and better king and ruler that, that impacts our lives and all human life around us. I didn't get that. Oh, my goodness. Get Why are you listening to me this morning? The gospel of the king reorients our life toward God and neighbor. This is, remember, this is what prefaced Matthew 23. Right? When the religious leader came and asked Jesus what's most important, he said to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So a right orientation with the Father reorients us with our neighbor. Right? It, it postures us to be able to hear people's stories. This is huge. If, if you ever, if we ever find ourselves having a hard time being merciful to people, ask them to tell them your, their story. you will have a lot more difficult time not being merciful. When we know people's stories, we tend to have more compassion. And too often we shut people down and are unwilling to enter into their stories. And Jesus, over and over and over again, Enters into the story. Jesus does not neglect the more important things. And so we learn to to enter humans' stories. And what we do is, what the gospel does is it reorients us. The the reality of the king, the implication is it it reorients us to see humans as image bearers, primarily and first and foremost, not as their sin. We see them as humans. And just so we know, too, Paul Paul emphasized this, right? The Apostle Paul. In Galatians, I'm going to read this one more text, and then we're, I just have a few implications for us, and then we'll be done. In, in Galatians chapter 2, notice, Paul is, um, he's, just, he's just gotten taken by Jesus, basically. In, in verse 6, it says, now, from those who rec- who, from those recognized as important, that's the leaders in Jerusalem, who's, who he's talking about, leaders in the church, what they once were makes no difference to me. God no, does not show favoritism. Hear that? <laughs> they added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised just as Peter was for the circumcised since... The one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now listen, they asked only that we should remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. So they send Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey, and what what do they emphasize? Remember the poor. What does Paul take as a primary priority in his ministry? Remember the poor. And so, we have to ask then, I don't have time to do that. Here, I'll say this, we need to stop believing the lie of just preach the gospel. We, we are heralders of the King. And given the opportunity, we, we are telling people about King Jesus. But that should not be to the neglect of loving them well. Right? Uh, when you're done here today, go home and read Luke chapter 11, verses 25 through 37. And notice, it's it's parable of the Good Samaritan. Notice the emphasis at the very end is that disciples of Jesus do mercy. Jesus said that the one who who did what was right was not the one who just preached the gospel. He said it was the one who showed mercy to the Samaritan. So how does this work? Like on a local level, where can we do that which is right? How do we enter into this space of justice? This is a challenging question that I don't have the ability to answer in just five minutes. Um, Our 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 culture, our world, puts everything at our fingertips and wants to make us believe that we're responsible to fix every injustice that there is on the face of the earth all at once. We don't do that. We absolutely believe that our sovereign Lord and King is over that and that all one day all wrongs will be put right. But we are in a local context. And so we get to ask, what do we do locally? How do we love our neighbor locally? Here's a couple of thoughts. Um, It would look like, let's see. How can we engage in loving the poor and marginalized? It might look like this. It might look like volunteering and giving time and money at a place like the pregnancy center down the road. Here's how we tend to try to escape this. We vote Republican. And Jesus says, get your hands dirty. Listen to the stories of the broken men and women. Right? It's loving the hurting families, not picketing them. We could volunteer and give time to the homeless population. It's, it's not for us to judge why they're homeless. Right. It's us to engage in helping them on deep levels that are so deep. But we've tried to partner up with places like the Valley House to help us in doing this. It's, it's things like, this might sound silly, but being concerned and educated regarding social media and its impact on our young people. I was listening to a podcast this last week. It's, it's just interesting how uh, the, the, there's a, this rapid increase in like, suicidal ideation among young people. And over and over and over and over again, studies connected to social media. I'll preach that it's destructive all day long. Right? And, and we have a, we have a space as, as a church, like how can we as, an, as a community be aware, like we have young people in our community who we want to love well, and that would look like being educated regarding these things. You know, a beautiful thing that might happen this, this summer, Sam Finster is planning to organize a prayer time at the bridge. Because recently we just had suicide after suicide of young people at our bridge. That's an injustice that we can care about. That's a human life that we can care about. Finally, it might look like stepping into something like the foster system. And I'll tell you, this one's a mess. This one's a mess. We, my, my wife and I have tried to jump into this recently, and it's really, 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 really hard. And I would love to discover ways that we as a local church to get involved more to care for the orphans in our city or to come alongside of families who are, right? And there's always going to be a tension of, of wondering, you know, is it enough? I don't think that's the right question, though. Right. I, I, in Christ, it is enough. Right. Uh, and, and, and these things are not, by any means, things that we do to try to earn more of God's favor. Remember, we can't. It's, we have it. We have God's mercy and love, all of it in Christ. But it's that love that compels us to love our neighbor And so we understand that until Jesus returns, there will be injustice all around us. And one day, God will indeed right all the wrongs of this world, but he's already begun to do so through his people, the church. And may we pray, just as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and not neglect to be salt and light in our way of being on this earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that we would be in awe of your mercy that has been given to us, that we would delight to follow you, Lord Jesus, our King, and that you would just show us the little ways in which we can love our neighbor around us, some of which may look incredibly significant, some of which may be incredibly insignificant. But let us not neglect these more important matters that you, our King, have called us to. Let there be joy, let there be delight in representing Jesus, in speaking of Jesus all around us. It's in your good name we pray, Jesus. Amen.